Welcome back to Let's Get Lit, the book club podcast with a twist. We are going to be talking about our very first book that we read. We, we read, read the, the book. book. We read the book. We read it. We did it. We know how to read. We're great. We're podcast hosts. Yeah. No Confederacy way. of Dunces. That's the book. <laughs> we read it. How about you? <laughs> So you are in for a treat if you made it along this far. There's going to be spoilers everywhere. Spoiler. We're going to talk about hot dogs. We're going to talk about our valve. We're going to talk about the book and discuss it and review things. And I'm excited. And we're going to read a reader review. Yay! Woo! All right. So what are we drinking today? Today we're drinking Dark and Stormy. It's reminiscent of the dark and stormy weather in New Orleans. I mean, during hurricane season, that's for sure. But even not during hurricane season, I feel like there would be these like gorgeous thunderstorms that would roll in. The first time, the first night I spent there where there was a thunderstorm, I turned off all the lights and I sat there just staring at the lightning that went off every 10 seconds because it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I think when you you weren't scared at all. No, because I mean, I don't know. I was in this new relatively new apartment it didn't it wasn't like the windows were shaking or anything like that but i think that you don't have we don't have lightning storms out here on the no. west coast the way they do out there it was just the coolest thing the light i mean watching the entire sky light up i just felt like a small child it was the most beautiful thing well that's the best inspiration for a cocktail i think i've ever heard yeah i had nothing in my apartment at the time i don't even think i had sodas or anything like that all it had was water from the tap which doesn't the water go out yeah it did occasionally or i'd get a text from the school the next day saying don't shower the water has brain eating amoebas in it well like that explains a lot thanks for sending that out at 11 (laughs) a.m after i've showered for the day after I've just, you know, drank a gallon full of tap water, no big deal. If it teaches you anything, it teaches you never to shower. I mean, I've already learned that lesson, lesson sister. Learned. <laughs> um, yeah, don't shower, drink your cocktails, enjoy grad school. Yeah, I mean, those are words to live by. So did you read the book? I did. Oh I did God. my homework. I did my homework. So did I. Magic school bus time. (laughs) I'm actually really proud of myself because I feel like whenever I was actually in school and I had to do my homework, I was always cramming to finish the book the morning before because I had to do other stuff and I just Uh. couldn't actually thoroughly enjoy reading as much. Yeah, because you're like, get to the point, get to the point. What am I going to be tested on? Exactly. But this time it was really nice because I felt like I actually had the time to read through the book and enjoy it and it was more of the pleasure reading but slightly structured because I knew I had to finish it by a certain date. Yeah, and you knew there was going to come a moment you had to talk about it so you had to have understood it to some extent. Which I did. Did you read the book? I did read the book. Oh and my God, we're A students. I mean, gold star all around. So, can you know. Can we put a gold star chart on the wall for I the definitely weeks can. where we do our and homework? see who, I mean, by the end of this, I'm sure there's going to be weeks where you haven't read or I haven't read or, you know, our book club peeps haven't read. And so we'll definitely track everyone's progress. Come on, book club. you got to keep us honest. Get it together. <laughs> Make us read. Um, but yeah, so kind of getting into the book itself, um, I, I will say when I read the first chapter that I've, I mean, spoiler alert, 
I thought the first chapter was the best chapter of the whole book. Agreed. Which wasn't totally surprised because something we had read when we were kind of researching in advance was the fact that, you know, the first chapter of this book is very widely considered to be like the funniest in American literature, at least one of the funniest, which so kind of going in, I had high expectations and was also very nervous because I knew this book was pretty controversial. People either love it or hate it. So Wondering kind of what were your initial impressions I of the book? I was dying laughing in public when I was reading this you book. You read it in public? Well, because I read a lot of times on my commute or I listen to audiobooks. So I actually was listening to this as an audiobook on my walk to work. Mm-hmm. And I just started cracking up. And is I it wanted... a good audiobook reader? I feel like if we know that intel, we should tell people. Yeah, it is. It's, it's good on audiobook. Okay. Some audiobooks I feel like really aren't, but this one was well done. Um, I started cracking up. And I wanted to call you or text you so badly because it just <laughs> reminded me of you so much. What? What part reminded you? Just the whole thing, huh? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, it was one. Uh, I all mean, the catastrophe. He, like one, how indignant he is about everything. I was just like, hundred percent, this is star. <laughs> But I just thought it was really funny, the whole... I mean, he's just standing there minding his own business and just everything falls apart around him and he's so indignant. As you should be. I know, but it was really funny. It reminded me of you and I started laughing. And I think any book that can actually make you have a reaction, Mm -hmm. like physically, it's good. But I agree with you. Well, I wouldn't say it's the best chapter, but it's the funniest chapter. Definitely the funniest. And definitely reading it, I felt like, oh my God, I'm going to pee my pants this whole book. Yes. But I will say, and there are other parts that were hilarious too, but I thought the first chapter, like, I mean, if that, I would say to anyone, if you've read the first chapter, you haven't moved on. If the first chapter didn't grab you, I would say probably the rest of the book won't, which with some books, I don't feel that way. I I tend to think, well, I'll get halfway through it or Mm -hmm. to a certain point. And that's when it catches you. This book had me from the first page and then I was invested. Yeah, I agree. I think I could not stop reading this when it started. And then I think that because the momentum in the beginning was so strong and it started to kind of not die out a little bit, but the things that I thought were so funny were more sad as the book progressed, yeah. if that makes sense. Well, it any became sense. more serious. It did. It like, be- at the beginning, it is just comedy, and it is slapstick, and it is just in your face. You can't take any of it seriously. Yeah. And then as you get to know the characters a little bit more, you know, the main character in particular, it, it you stop being able to easily think of him as the butt of every joke. Yes. I think it's like if you were to watch like a Adam Sandler movie or something like that where it's like kind of slapstick and funny and then you take a step back and they just look at like how his life is sad and he uses comedy to cope with things you'd be like oh this makes me a little uncomfortable yeah that's how I felt about this book it was like that movie um did you ever see that movie funny people I think I did, but it was like forgettable for me. It was sad. Actually, you know what it was? It was a movie that was supposed to be funny and it was sad. It was sad? Yeah. So I'm now realizing I that was like a movie where someone was like, you want to come over and watch a movie? And I was like, okay, so Netflix I didn't actually chill. watch the movie. But I remember looking, yeah, it was pre-Netflix, <laughs> Netflix and chill. It was like Hollywood video But I knew when chill. you said that, I was like, I didn't really enjoy that movie, but now I'm realizing it had nothing to do with the movie and everything to do with my experience. Did you hate that person? I mean, I didn't have... It, well, I didn't hate the person, but I was like, ugh, I could have stayed home and eaten my <laughs> cheese dip. 
like Ignatius. Exactly. Apparently he makes a hell of a cheese dip. He has strange standards, though. He was one of those characters that I had a hard time being like, what's your, what's your like barometer for things? Because he seemed to think really highly of some things and really lowly of other things. And I could never tell, you know, when he was going to take a stance positive or negative. I had no idea. It was so all over the place. It was like when you're friends with a psychopath (laughs) and something happens and you're you're not friends with any psychopaths. That's true. I'm not holding a knife to her neck as I say that. I swear. True. All <laughs> my friends are nice and normal. That's right. Internet trolls. Leave them alone. Leave us alone. <laughs> leave Brittany alone. Oh, poor Brit Brett. Poor Brit Brett. But yeah, no. So, I mean, that's a good point, too. What did you think of Ignatius? Did you feel like he had redeeming moments, or did you think he was just despicable all the way around? Or did you think he was. You know, a great character. I don't want to put thoughts in your head, but isn't he the worst? Yeah. Okay, I don't let know. me take the knife away from your neck so you can give your honest opinion. <laughs> well, what were so your thoughts? I feel like I feel like Ignatius as a character was someone that I just wanted to continue to watch. Did you spill your wine everywhere? No, just on my computer, which is cool. It's <laughs> fine. I don't need this. <laughs> Keep going. I'll just lick it off my computer. That's nice. Okay. Um, I think that as a character in a book, I enjoyed reading about him. If he was a real person in real life, I just imagine him as being... So you work in an office, as do I. And you know how there's always that one person in your office where you're just like, why are you even here Mm -hmm. that's how i imagine ignatius being if he was a real person which partly made me more sympathetic to those people in real life that i really don't like but also made me less sympathetic to ignatius it was kind of a double-edged sword i don't know what did you think about him obviously you thought he was the worst but well no so the first chapter i definitely was you know just laughing i thought he was hilarious I, you know, the way he made fun of other people to me, I mean, we didn't know him at this point, right? You know, we're just meeting this person. It's like, oh, they seem very funny and sarcastic and charming. And only later did I realize like, oh, he just hates on everyone around him. Um, I will also say like the first chapter, there were certain things that I thought, oh, this is really funny, but also, oh my God, this is a little too close to home. Like this 30 year old living with his parents who has like frequent, frequent that's how you pronounce the word like bouts of unemployment like that's a totally normal thing that people relate to frequent bouts of valve issues (laughs) i was gonna get to the valve thing too i also was i had never heard of this pyloric valve before which is shocking because you know raging hypochondriac over here but i cannot tell you how many times since reading this book I've just been thinking to myself my valve I like, know. oh my god this is going to really upset my valve and obviously anyone who's read this I mean drink every time you hear valve in this book because it's Ignatius's favorite thing to talk about and yeah I mean at the beginning I thought this guy's funny this guy gets it but as things went on I was like dude like You think you're better than everyone. You have nothing to offer. And at a certain point, I just would get frustrated with his, you know, inability to ever do the right thing. Yeah. But to your point, too, every now and then he would kind of take up for someone or seem to kind of be 
feeling positively about someone or some things. And it didn't seem to have any rhyme or reason for me mm-hmm. other than if people were already kind of being shit on or in any way, like kind of the outsider, he seemed to relate to them because mm-hmm. he thinks he's like the ultimate outsider. Yeah. Hashtag hipster. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Overall, I would say I didn't like him and I was definitely rooting for him to fail at a certain point in this book. And then yeah. you would have flashes of sympathy for him, especially towards the end where they start to kind of make you think about how he became the way he became. Um, but at the beginning, he was just funny in the middle. I just hated him. And at the end I was like, I don't know, human being, I guess. I feel like when I first started reading this book, I, the, he reminded me so much of you. And then yeah. I know, but, and then as I kept but reading, yeah. I felt I <laughs> like felt he like, reminded you even more of me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I felt like really bad for making that comparison at all because I think like for he starts for off me. as being, well, I mean, obviously, I don't think he's actually like you. <laughs> but I think he starts off almost as being more relatable and more likable. Mm-hmm. Because I think that I looked at him as having like a mean, funny sense of humor. Well, the he way was almost I like he's like so anxiety prone where he's just like got so much going on in his head where I felt like he was more relatable that first chapter where you're like, oh my God, girl, same. But there's nothing about him that is self-deprecating. No. Which makes him, like, you have no empathy for him because the reason that I liked him so much in the beginning is because I thought, oh, I see myself in in this character, like those little quirky anxieties. But because he lacks complete self-awareness, he's not likable at all. Like, which just kind of goes to show you can be a pretty shit person, but if you take responsibility for being a shit person and you yeah. like try to joke about it or at least like acknowledge the fact that you could be better, it makes you more likable to other people. Well, there's also, if you laugh at other people, you have to be able to laugh exactly. at yourself. He cannot laugh at himself for anything, which he's like the most ridiculous character, yeah. which is where I start to lose sympathy for him. Where if he was like, Oh God, look at me. What a mess. You could be like, Oh, Ignatius, you do your best, sir. Exactly. But not at all. He thinks everyone around him is terrible and he's wonderful. And the whole time you read it, you just think like, you've got a lot of nerve to put yourself above anyone on any kind of hierarchical chain. He is just so tough to root for. He is. You know, there's, there's just nothing about him that makes you want to like him. He's really, you just, like you said, you're rooting for him to fail Mm -hmm. because he's, he's such a jerk. He's so mean to all the people around him. He always gives himself the benefit of the doubt and doesn't ever give it to anyone else. So even when he does these really just repugnant, awful things to other people and I mean, like he, he does this weird strike at his job (laughs) And I mean, he one of his many jobs, one of his many yes. jobs, but he could have really put like all of these people out of business and caused a huge, you know, issue. Mm-hmm. And especially this book is set like in the South during the civil rights era. Like it could have been a big, these problem. are high stakes, not exactly. for him. Exactly. But for him, he doesn't actually take into consideration what it could mean for the other people that he's involved with, mm-hmm. which just makes me want to smack him in the face because it's, It's just so self-serving. He's so self-serving. He is so self-serving. And it's something, too, which I struggled with a little bit during the book where, you know, at the beginning I felt like, well, this is just a comedy and it's not meant to be taken seriously at all. So, like, we can just kind of laugh at it. 
But I struggle with that in books sometimes where I don't feel like I connect to the characters or I'm not Mm -hmm. rooting for anyone. So even if I might be able to say, oh, it's entertaining or it's smart or it makes a good point about something, if I don't feel a connection to any of the characters, it's like, I don't really care. Like, I am all about that character development and I don't know how much ignatius develops as a character i think we learn more about him and as the novel goes on we start to understand more the reasons why he is the way he is Mm -hmm. but he doesn't make any progress yeah i mean i think that there's definitely parts in the book where you feel badly for him but it's not the same as sympathizing with him as a character you're like oh that's sad and i'm like sad and embarrassed for you Mm mm-hmm but I don't feel bad for you because I think that part of what, what happens when you like someone or you feel bad for them is when they make an effort, you know, to he makes no effort. He makes no effort to make anyone like him and then is just indignant that nobody likes him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, why would they like you? You're unlikable on purpose. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, you see people like that in real life sometimes and you think you know, just make an effort. And I guess people, you know, put a wall up or, or don't want to try to make an effort because they're afraid that if they make an effort... They already and know the, they're going to be rejected. Yeah. So they reject people first. Exactly. Which is why sometimes I think, like, if you're dating or meeting people for the first time, you're, like, kind of mean and douchey because you're like, oh, well, then if they don't like me, it's because they just didn't understand my sense of humor. Right. I know I do that for sure. I mean, when I first met my fiance, I insulted him right off the bat. That's how we met. How did you insult him? Um, well, we met online and there was a picture of him surfing. Well, not surfing. He was holding a surfboard in front of surfboard. a completely flat ocean with no waves. And, you're like, and I was wow. like, <laughs> I was like, have, I said something about have fun surfing that puddle or something. <laughs> And that's how you get a ring, ladies. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the but Ignatius I mean, Riley method. <laughs> just insult everyone and someone yeah. who responds to you, it's meant to be. You're like, okay, they get me. They're my Myrna Minka. But I mean, that's kind of what he did. Like, yeah. he was just awful to Myrna the entire... Maybe I am like Ignatius. Well, I will say, like, Myrna and Ignatius, like, their relationship, if you could call it that, is all fire and all arguing with each other like they have nothing if they are not disagreeing with each other they are just each other's kind of foil in this book and yeah i mean the whole point of everything he does every kind of mission he has at any point in this book is not about him wanting to do something that he thinks is great it's about wanting to like make a fool of myrna or to prove a point to her yeah and I'm like, well, that's the basis of a healthy relationship. I mean, I don't think that he had anything else going for him. I don't think that he... He was really smart. I mean, he was very well-read. Very educated. He, very educated, but his life had no trajectory. Mm-hmm. He was just existing. And I think that sometimes if you're just existing, you try to find a sense of purpose in something. You know, otherwise you're just going through your day-to-day work life, like blah, blah, blah. This is so boring. And then all of a sudden you're like, I should probably create a podcast because I have nothing else to live for. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, man, we're all Ignatius, aren't we? Oh 
little. Well, I don't know. At least none of us are throwing files in the trash. That's my favorite thing that Ignatius <laughs> does at work when he's like, how will I succeed? Uh, I don't have time for this filing that is my well, he, job yeah, as a he's file a clerk. filing job. Yeah. And so he's just like, I have other things to do, like start an uprising or like build these kind of signs. So I'm just going to throw all these files away. Everything's done. And I was like, oh, why have I never thought of that with my job? Like, don't do the work assigned to me. Just destroy the evidence that the work was ever assigned. So honestly, like we said, he's a really smart guy. He kind of gets it. I wonder what he would be in the, in the digital age. Like if he would have had a job in the digital age, he probably would have been a professional internet troll. Yeah. Like a hacker or something or just, you know, you can't. Can you be a professional? Insulting hackers. You're insulting powerful people on the internet. Uh, I love hackers. I love internet trolls. Um, I love Ignatius Riley. Who else do I love? Yeah, I love everyone. You love anyone who can harm you. Yeah, I love anyone who's a threat to me. If you're not a threat to me, then I might be an Ignatius towards you because you're the only ones that I can take my anger out on. That is like a real power play right there. Except everyone's a threat to me. I'm very low on the food chain. So what did you think about the title, Confederacy of Dunces? It was um, part of that essay by Jonathan Swift. Hold on, I have the quote. Oh, I messed up on this in the last episode. So oh yeah, give when me, you were reading give me a second synopsis. shot. I'll Hold give on, you I got a chance this. to make it right. Ahem. <clears throat> When a true genius appears in the world, you may know him by this sign that the dunces are all in confederacy against him. Thoughts on various subjects, moral and diverting, by Jonathan Swift. That was so well articulated. Thank you. I'm blown away. Practiced my reading skills. <laughs> I mean, you've come a long way since our first episode, I have to say. Thank you. Um, yeah. What did I make of this title? It is funny because obviously, like we said, Ignatius is such a genius, and I feel like the title seems to suggest, or at least, you know, the quotation from which it's derived, that <laughs> The sign of a genius is obviously, like, everyone in this book hates Ignatius. He feels like it's him against the world. But I feel like this would, you know, seem to state that, like, you know you're on the right track if you are upsetting people, if you're disturbing the status quo, if you're making people feel uncomfortable with the things that they've accepted, which that is Ignatius to a T. But I don't think of it as a positive with him. No. Because I don't think that he disturbs people in a way that makes them question anything they do in a positive manner. I think he does it just to be a shit disturber and just because he hates himself. Mm -hmm. I don't think that he is trying to like provoke or create any kind of change. One thing that he does a lot in the novel is kind of revert back to, oh, medieval times were the best of times. Yes. Which is like that classic <laughs> hipster bullshit. Yeah. Where they're like, if only I was alive during this time when like I had all the benefits and had to do none of the work. That would be so great. Look at my cool glasses. First That's all, the hipster mantra. Anyone who wants to live at a time when antibiotics didn't exist is just an Ugh. idiot. Just an idiot. Just really taking things for granted. I love antibiotics. I love antibiotics too. (laughs) Yeah. Unless we could like time travel and go back with antibiotics. There's no other reason to go. Yeah. I mean, 
it's totally beside the point, but I think that, or I think it's really easy to look back at the past with rose colored glasses. You know, I mean, I look at rose colored hipster glasses. Exactly. I mean, even like in your own life, you look back at parts of your life where you think about, oh, I was so happy. If only I'd recognized at that point how great my life was. That those are the good days. Yeah. But I mean, all days are bullshit days. Yeah. Some days are good and some days are bad, but there isn't like a time in history where things were glorious. Things are better now than they've been in a long time. But I imagine also, I mean, this book's set in the 60s, right? And the 60s, I think, were probably... A time of upheaval. They were, it was a time of upheaval. Things were tumultuous that nobody really knew what was going to happen. It seemed like, you know, there was threats to the democracy. All sorts of things in the world were changing. There was multiple wars going on, wars that people didn't understand and didn't agree with. The civil rights movement was happening, which scared a lot of people and excited a lot of people, but was dangerous and hard. And, you know, I think that it's probably reminiscent of how the world is now, where it seems like this is really hard and I think Mm -hmm. anytime where there's changes happening it's really hard and it's frustrating and you want to think that there was a time in the world where things were better I think about that a lot and this is totally unrelated to the book but I'm still going to talk about it so you know everything that's going on with the me too movement it's like really difficult to digest a lot of times and I feel it's depressing because you hear about all of these things all the time and you're like is this really what our world has come to are there really all these terrible men in power all the time like is this a now thing but I think it's not it's this is like we're making progress this is a good thing that all of these things are coming to light even because though they're it already feels happening exactly all of these things have been happening they've been happening for as long as people have been around people in power have been taking advantage of people who aren't in power a lot of times it's men towards women but there's also instances where it's not it goes in every direction it tends to be that the people in power in this country have tended to be more male than female so mm -hmm. i think that's a lot of the causality of why it tends to go in that direction but yeah it is it seems like to your point it's things are worse than they've ever been or it's harder than it's ever been but it's just people speaking truth to power and just calling these things out where before we all just you know, suffered silently when these things happened. And now people actually talk about it, which feels stressful, but you know, progress always requires that people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Unfortunately. I think it's, I mean, it's gotta be growing pains, but Mm -hmm. I think that's what it was probably felt like in the sixties too. It's those growing pains. You know, when you're Ignatius during previous times would have been in a position of power. He was, you know, a middle-class white man who was educated. Mm -hmm. Like, he had all... He checked all the boxes for people who would have been, you know, the people who held the power. And I think it probably was scary to him to be in a changing world where he didn't necessarily hold that power. Yeah. And I get it. I think that, you, you know, you want to look at the world in a way where things are easy. But I think that if you look at them only from a point of view where things were easy for you, Mm -hmm. that's wrong. Yeah, Obviously, because you, you have to think of everyone. Think about this, but yeah. still, you have to think about everyone else, and it is interesting too because, of course, and I think your point's really important about you know the '60s, a lot of upheaval and things are changing, and whether or not you know someone like Ignatius, a white, educated male, has lost any power, it feels like the power is slipping away, totally. and that's when they start to grasp onto it more and attack people around them, but with him it gets so frustrating because he makes 
excuse after excuse about why he can't do certain things or why he shouldn't have to lower himself to certain, you know, kinds of work. And you actually see as he kind of jumps between job to job and he fails miserably, but he's given so many chances that most Mm -hmm. people wouldn't be given. Totally. And there's just this kind of like perception that he is competent when he walks in the door at certain places because of who he is because of the fact that he's an educated white man people just kind of give him the benefit of the doubt for things that typically you wouldn't so yeah i mean he's definitely an unhappy genius but i mean everybody has their own struggles right it's but it's hard to be sympathetic with him yeah i think because he has everything handed to him like if you looked at if he had other characteristics, like I think that if he was a woman, I would be more sympathetic to him. Or if he had been a black character in this book, you'd totally. be more sympathetic to him. Where, And, you know, I don't have the quote at hand, but he has this one part of the book where he actually, you know, is comparing himself when he's kind of deciding to stage this revolution. Yeah. And he is comparing himself to African-Americans in the Ugh. U.S. and saying why he relates to them, but the difference he has with them is, you know, he says, oh, well, they, no one expects anything of them. And this is apparently supposed to be some sort of benefit to them. And why are they aspiring to more? Like, if only they'd be happy with the nothing they have, things would be so great. The problem he has is people expect him to go to the next level. And, they're, you know, he's trying to say it in this twisted way of, like, it's actually harder for him because people have higher expectations of him. And if it were up to him, he and his mom would just live in a shack with no possessions and that would be great. And if only, you know, he was an African American, he would have no expectations and life would be so simple. I know. But it's things like that where you just can't be sympathetic to his his character. Right. You're like, okay, you are so out of touch that nobody likes you. Right. And there's a reason no one likes you. And it is interesting too, because it's, you know, this confederacy of dunces things, like the title itself, the other people in this book, I know you and I had talked a little bit before we kind of started recording about like, a lot of these characters aren't actually that likable. It's not Mm -hmm. just Ignatius. And I think one of the things I liked about Ignatius at the beginning was yeah, he pisses everyone off, but, like, there's a lot of people I don't like, so it's kind of funny to watch yeah. them be, like, disturbed by him. But there are a few characters that I think we could agree, like, are, you know... Yeah, not deserving of that. Yeah, the, there's a couple, you know, quote-unquote good guys, so to speak, to simplify it a bit. One of those would be, you know, Burma Jones. Who else? We love Santa or Santa. Yes. We're not sure how we pronounce her leg, her name, her yeah. legs. Dorkin's <laughs> story. Her legs. I'm, uh, her body parts. She has flailing boobs. That's all I know about Santa. Take it away, Brandy. Who else do we like? I feel like we're getting a little off topic here. You want to do some discussion questions? Let's discuss. Okay, so you want to go first? You want me to? You go first. What is your favorite quote from the book? Ooh. I feel like I highlighted quite a few. It's hard to pick just one. Go through. Pick one. Let's think. I'll drink okay. while you think. That's fair. Okay, well, I'll say look, 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 look. one of the first ones when I said anything I've highlighted in my Kindle that came <laughs> up that immediately just made me chuckle was 
Ignatius saying, I mingle with my peers or no one. And since I have no peers, I mingle with no one. <laughs> that one just really resonated with me because I thought, girl, same. But, you know, I digress. I'll move on to one that we no, can actually talk that. about. No, I love that too. Okay. But that just came up and made me chuckle very briefly. That's true. So the one that I guess I would say was the most either the most remarkable to me or the one that just kind of came up right now so we're gonna pretend it's the most remarkable is again by Ignatius shocker I just happen to relate to the most repugnant character in this novel he says I refuse to quote unquote look up optimism nauseates me it is perverse since man's fall his proper position in the universe has been one of misery I actually highlighted that exact same quote. Did you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. We're friends. Because you know why, though? I feel like it's so true. It is so true. And even though I try to posit myself as like an optimism person, and I'm like, I. An optimism person? An optimistic person? I like optimism person. I'm not. No. Like, Who, the only people that are. Sorry. I mean, if you're an optimism person, good for you. Your grammar's flawed, but, like, you don't you're, know it, so you're happy with yourself. But, yeah, like, only live your best life. Ignorance is bliss, as they say. I feel like we've had this conversation before, but that it's only stupid people are happy. Correct. Because if you're a person who thinks thoughts, you cannot go through your life and think your thoughts and be a happy person. Like, no. It's... That's why so many artists are so, like, in authors and stuff, they're just so disturbed all yes. the time. Because when you're a person who thinks a lot of thoughts, like, the world can get really dark really quickly. But it also, it can be really beautiful and wonderful. But I feel like you can't even see that if, unless you have a comparison point, you know? It's funny because that kind of lends to one of the questions I had was kind of surrounding why is it that geniuses particularly in this book but also in our lives tend to be the most miserable haunted people there are around and I feel like that kind of pertains to this quote too which is like most people who tend to be pretty intelligent or pretty well read pretty like you know have a tendency to research things and not just kind of take things at face value they're not usually happy people and Mm -hmm. often like true geniuses are very depressed and it tends to be some kind of curse and it is interesting because you can tell obviously this author is very very intelligent yeah very educated but he seems to have this very kind of I don't know like he seems to have a negative perception of educated people like Ignatius in particular he's someone who is so educated to the point of he's taking it to that next level where it's no longer helpful it's Mm -hmm. now kind of something that is working against him and working against everyone else yeah you know so one of the things that kind of struck me when we were reading this is what is kind of that tipping point of like when is when do you know too much or when does knowledge become no longer helpful or beneficial to you but when does it become Problematic. When does it start to make you unhappy or when does it make you someone who is so critical and so unable to just live in the moment that you make everyone around you miserable, which is something that Ignatius embodies yeah. so wholly that 
people can't even stomach his company. I mean, I think that there's a lot. I mean, that's a super deep question. There's a lot to it. Like, why are geniuses depressed and sad? But I think that when you look at everything from an analytical lens and you don't take it at face value, it's really easy to see the ugly side of everything, mm-hmm. you know, because things are, are really ugly and humans have made the world a place where you're supposed to be happy and there's like all these conveniences. But I was telling my boyfriend the other day that we were driving through the suburbs like it makes me want to die driving through the suburbs in these places where everything's so cookie cutter because everything just feels so manufactured and mm-hmm. fake and like you're so disconnected and everybody's trying so hard to be just a cog or like you know just function within the society that's just built to keep you alive and have like no substance and it's it's suffocating it's like really really depressing and it's hard to think about. And I think that Ignatius wears that on his sleeve in a way that most people can't mm-hmm. because most people, as much as they may have disdain for the system, they're not able to really escape it. Like, I have a real job. And even though I yeah. feel like I don't want to be the kind of person who owns things and wants things and covets shit, I'm still like, yeah, I want some new shoes and I want a new bag and, like... I want to eat food at nice places and you know what I mean? It's like, so you keep just like, once you're exposed to those things, you just keep wanting them more. And Ignatius is kind of like, he has no material aspirations at all. No, he really doesn't. And in some ways it's like, he's managed to kind of escape these material obsessions, but still in a way that is like, he has just opted out of society. Yeah, And to some extent we can all relate to that and feel like we've all had those moments where we realize it's all just kind of nonsense and BS but it's not like he refocuses his attention or his intellect on accomplishing anything positive or constructive he just takes the time to be so critical of everything around him and that's you know that's where it ends with him he doesn't take anything a step further to say like this is nonsense this is stupid but so then what what is a better way or like how do we evolve from this he just gets stuck in that kind of negativity he does decide that he's going to start a revolution to start world world peace by only having gay (laughs) people in places of power fair enough which is sounds great but i mean it comes from a really weird place which is not that he actually wants the world would be peaceful, but that he wants to get back at Myrna. Because I think As that, always. <laughs> I think that, like, also, when you're an intelligent person who puts a lot of thought into things and you're depressed about it, it also gives you this weird, like, narcissistic complex where you just feel totally. like both you're more important and no one understands, and how are all these dumb people not understanding that, like, all of this is bullshit? Mm-hmm. Which also makes you a complete narcissistic asshole. Of course. Because... It's cyclical. It is cyclical. And then all of a sudden, like, you you come out of it at some point, and you're like, you know, people can be happy. And, mm-hmm. like, you don't, you don't have to look at all of this and be like, all of this is bullshit. It's okay for you not to analyze things and yeah. just be happy. Well, and let's take a step back and talk about the people in this book who seem to be happy. Darlene seems to be happy, even though she has very little reason to be so. She's got her cockatoo. She does. Santa. Santa, also happy. Yeah. Clyde, another one that's happy. All of these people are characters in the book who are described to be as, if not stupid, but 
no one accuses them of being smart, you could say. Yeah. And there really is that kind of ignorance is bliss comment totally. out there, which at a certain point, intelligence doesn't necessarily make you more satisfied or make you more happy in any way. I think it makes you less satisfied. Yeah, because it just makes you really question everything around you and kind of like this quote in particular, like you're unable to just accept things for how they are. You're always having to question things and whether or not it's important to do that or whether or not anything is any deeper than kind of face value, you just feel this need to, you know, you see a vase of roses and you want to know like, where did these roses come from? And, you know, who produced this vase? Are they and fair trade organic roses? Exactly. Like, it's a very you just. comment. That's it, why all hipsters just, are depressed. Yeah. And that's why Ignatius is the ultimate hipster. But so ultimate. He even dresses like one. Yeah. And he's not trying to be no. cool. He's just so. He was a hipster before it was cool. the system. Yeah. Yeah. He had a the mustache. Hipster. Yeah. It was great. Oh, Ignatius. I feel like this is this conversation turned really depressing but I feel like this book is kind of depressing but also not well it is funny because I I mean I thought it was hilarious the whole way through I was surprised at the end by the fact that it started to become endearing or the fact that I even felt connected to any of the characters because they're so cartoonish yes repugnant yeah through the whole book that you are able to just kind of laugh at everyone without taking anything seriously and then yeah, towards the end, it, you actually start to feel something for the characters, which surprised me because I never intended to care about Ignatius. But towards the end, I did. Yeah, I think I felt a little bad for almost everyone in the book because mm-hmm. I think that they... I mean, I don't think that the author made any attempts to make anyone seem redeeming. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Actually, there was one quote, and I'm going to pull it up here because... It like it like almost brought me to tears. It was so sad. Oh my god, I can't wait. I know. So hold on, was wait. It let me. About Ignatius. Or... It was about Ignatius. Um, well, so okay, it here. Is, yeah. I've got it. So let's hear what you said. It was when it was when they were at the. Um, he was trying to have that like political party revolution, and everyone started being like, "You are the worst." And the quote is, Ignatius, feeling just as invisible standing there in Dorian's living room, began feigning at some imaginary opponent with his cutlass to relieve his self-consciousness. <laughs> but the beginning of that quote starts off with, like, talking about him in from his childhood. And he said, hold on, let me grab it. Ignatius felt as alone as he had felt on that dark day in high school when in a chemistry lab... His experiment had exploded, burning off his eyebrows and frightening him. The shock and terror had made him wet his pants, and no one in the laboratory would notice him, not even the instructor who hated him sincerely for similar explosions in the past. <laughs> for the remainder of the day, he walked around soggily, he walked soggily around the school. Everyone had pretended that he was invisible. And I just felt like that was the saddest thing. That like It explains a lot about how he is, that some people are just a little weird and it's really hard yeah and I feel like you and I are both super fucking weird but we only knew other really fucking weird people and so it was kind of okay Mm -hmm. but I feel like had you you and I grown up in a place where we couldn't be our like authentically freaking bonkers weird selves and still fit in and and had support and still felt like totally 
I can imagine like totally going off the deep end the way that he did because I think that especially when you're young all you want is to feel like you have your people and if you don't feel like you have your people then you just feel super lost and I feel like that kind of thing won't ever leave you but that's what stuck with me about this is like when he was reflecting on feeling alone and left out in a room full of adults he starts having a pretend sword fight with nobody in the corner and it's like funny from an observer's standpoint but when you actually think about it you're like that's really sad and also like who hasn't felt that way a little bit sometimes where you're like oh nobody laughed at my joke let me go over here and pretend like I'm texting someone who likes me just having this like separate moment no one needs to worry about yeah I don't know the whole thing was really really sad to me I felt sad yeah sorry that was a bummer no no it's not a bummer it is it was surprising kind of nearing the end of the book to relate to Ignatius in any yeah. way. And you I related to him since day one. Well, no, but relating it. Yeah. Day one, chapter one, same, same. But in a way that I felt like, ah, oh, this is, it's ridiculous, but you know, representing the worst and most ridiculous mm-hmm. parts of ourselves. And then as you get towards the end, it starts to feel less ridiculous and more sincere and legitimate. Yeah. And, it also, it was interesting when Levy kind of came trying to find out what happened, like who forged his signature, how it is he's gotten to all this trouble. And he starts to hear about Ignatius through the perspective of his neighbor and his mother, all these people who hate him. And he starts to feel really bad for Ignatius. And it kind of makes you as the reader start to feel bad for Ignatius yeah. because you hear like, he actually, not to say he was a normal kid before, like high school but you know he had this dog he was you know nothing really unusual about him yeah his dog passed away he had this traumatic experience and that seemed to be a big shift for him his mom wasn't very supportive and then all of a sudden it seemed to be this kind of domino effect of it turned out into being something like way bigger than it needed to and you started to actually see him as a human being where for the whole you know the vast majority of the novel Again, he's a cartoon, so he's not someone that you necessarily feel sympathy for. Yeah. You see him as to blame for all of his own problems, Mm -hmm. but then you actually start to see, like, yeah, there was something that set off him being this way. He didn't just come into this world Ignatius Riley in all his kind of flesh and glory. Yeah. Maybe more or less, but there was some help along the way. I mean, I think that it's... It just is, like, kind of skimming the surface of being about mental illness without being so obvious. Yeah. You know, they're they're talking about all these people living, you know, weird but relatively normal lives, just, like, dealing with whatever it is that they have to deal with. Like, everybody in here is dealing with some sort of kind of weird mentally, mental illness type thing. Totally. But, I mean, who isn't? Yeah. It's just... We're just not normally in the spotlight. Correctamundo. Um, do you want to talk about some of your other questions? Sure. I just asked mine, right? Which was the quote one. Yeah, and I feel like I kind of touched on one of mine as well. So who wants to go next? I'll go next. Okay. Um, so one of my, I mean, one of the things I've obviously related to Ignatius most about is the fact that he is the ultimate drama queen, which I love and adore. And I would say, what do you think is kind of his most dramatic or most uncalled for tantrum that he throws in this book? Or one that just kind of like stood out to you. I know there's so many, like every, 
two pages he does something that's unreasonable. But what was, like, if someone were to ask you, like, what's the most obnoxious I thing he does? I think the most obnoxious, I mean, yeah, you're right. He's obnoxious through and through. Mm-hmm. But the most obnoxious thing that he did, well, I don't know. Just what comes to mind first so, off. There's two things that come to mind. Okay. And one is starting the revolt of the workers (laughs) in the factory because I feel like it didn't turn out poorly for everyone. I mean, he's the only one that got fired, Mm -hmm. but he could have lost all of those people their jobs over, like, one of his selfish little things. Yeah. So that bothered me because I was like... Most of the time, he's just fucking things up for himself. Yeah. But in this case, he's royally, like, putting everyone on the line and then just not supporting them. But the more kind of basic thing that he does, tantrum-wise, is go into the movie theater (laughs) and just (laughs) be the most obnoxious, pitching-a-fit little brat ever. Mm -hmm. Like, the fact that he's screaming at the screen, he's tossing his popcorn everywhere, he's just overall being an a-hole... Like, I just feel like people with bad manners are the worst. They are the worst. You should have proper social etiquette. So what did you think of this book overall? Overall, I really liked this book. I thought it was really funny. I thought it was really clever. I, towards the end, was surprised by the fact that I felt connected to the characters. I felt like things really tied up kind of in a neat little bow at the end. I actually feel like this is the type of book going back to read again I would really like to see all the little things I missed because I felt like Tool just you know kind of dropped a lot of different you know easter eggs and clues along the Mm -hmm. way that certain things I was like wow I can't believe that came full circle and other things I thought oh I kind of forget what happened because Mm -hmm. you know it was a wild ride but I will say reading it it wasn't something that I was dying to read every week. It felt a little bit like homework. Thank God we had book club that was encouraging me to read it. But I felt like it started really strong, really funny. The first chapter, the middle got a little slow for me. And then towards the end, it picked back up and I ended feeling like I really, really liked it. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I'd say overall positive experience. Four star out of 10. Like my rating, like a number out of 10. I would say... It was an 8 out of 10 for me. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. I wouldn't... I wasn't going to give it an 8. Well, you don't have to. You get to have your own opinion. Okay. This is review of Confederacy of Dunces. By By Brandy. Brandy. Milk punch. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would give it like a 6.5 or 7. And I think that it was a wonderful piece of literature. However... I just feel like I enjoy kind of pleasure reads more. And I think Mm -hmm. books that are a little bit more of a struggle to get through, I prefer to gain something from insightful. Like I would prefer it to be nonfiction. Something that you walk away from thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like I was able to step away from this book and be like, okay, I'm not, I don't feel bad that I read this. I don't feel like it was a waste of time at all. There was definitely parts of it where I was laughing out loud And I think that it was a really interesting look at the city of New Orleans. There was Mm -hmm. a lot of parts of it that I really liked. But like you said, I wasn't dying to read it all the time. And I just love a good page turner. Yeah. You know what I think? Well, and there's something to that 
You were supposed to not talk over me. I know. That's. Do you hear how I stopped? I closed my <laughs> mouth. I said, I think there's something to that. It's okay. Go ahead. No, I'm not talking over you. You'll go off hard. I don't really remember what I was going to say anymore. I just was excited that I got to call you out. <sighs> <laughs> well, what else do you think, Brandy? <laughs> okay, I'll talk over you. Um, no, I think I completely agree with you. And I think a lot of times books that I just really like reading, they're not always books that I'd say like, oh my God, this was incredible because Mm -hmm. I'll forget about it a month later where I couldn't even tell you what the plot was and talk over me. I can tell you want to. I was just going to say also that I feel like this isn't, this is a book that I am proud to tell people I've read. And when (laughs) people ask me what I was reading, I want to be like, oh, I was reading Confederacy of Dunces. That being said... I, I think that you wouldn't read it again. There's like a Venn diagram of books I really love mm-hmm. and then books I'm proud to tell people I'm reading <laughs> and the overlap between them is not super large. Right. You know, there's some books that I really love that I also think are worthwhile reads and I'm not embarrassed that I'm reading them and otherwise I'm just like, okay, I'm reading this like smutty novel, but I just happen to enjoy it and I don't really care what anyone thinks of me except I'm going to read it on my Kindle so no one can see what I'm reading. <laughs> but I am enjoying it. Exactly. In all places. Um, I would say for me, there's part of that Venn diagram is also books. I've had books where I'm like, I've hated every second of reading it. And then at the end, I'm so glad that I read it because I like, felt like I got so much out of the it. The Old Man in the Sea. I mean, I didn't read that, but what? sure. What? You didn't read The Old Man in the Sea? I didn't. Did you read that for school? Why yeah. else would you read that? I read it for school and it was a book where literally nothing happened for the entire book. And then at the end, I was like, wow, this is really reminiscent of like what life is like. Yeah, I felt like that about <laughs> Grapes of Wrath. We're yes. reading it. I thought, what a boring book. But the only reason I finished it was because in seventh grade, I had talked our English teacher out of making me read a book that I just thought sounded stupid. I don't know. I took some arbitrary stance against it, as <laughs> I do, and was like, you need to let me read something else. And she like challenged me with like, fine, then you can read Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath as like a, yeah, right, you're not going to read this. And I was like, I'm going to read this. <laughs> and so I did. And it was torture also because I was in seventh grade. But then at the end, I was like, this is one of my favorite books ever. And I would have never read it I would have never read it. I would have never read it otherwise. It's a pretty incredible book. but It's I get, an incredible book. It's exactly but what I'm thinking. Is it again. a page turner? No. Not really. It's really depressing. I will say with this one, and again, like beginning, I was really enjoying the middle kind of could take or leave. At the end, I was like, I mean, reading it. Wow. Like I was so also just feeling very impressed. I love when things kind of tie in together. Mm-hmm. And I mean... One thing you know about me, I have a really good memory too. So very small details. I never remember important things. I remember like really, really small details that don't matter. So I just was really like impressed with how clever um, the book was and how Tool tied so many things in at the end. So at the end of it, I did feel like, wow, this is different than anything I've read. And Mm -hmm. I felt really excited about it. And I actually felt like I wanted to read it again, but I definitely didn't feel like, oh my God, this was a thrilling read, would read at the beach, Mm -hmm. would read for fun, would recommend to all my friends. I probably wouldn't recommend it to most people I know because they'd be like, ugh, I just want to read about murder. That's true. Yeah. Well, because we have actually 
so th- we're releasing these after we've recorded them, but we pre-released some of these episodes to a select group of people. So we have some cool reader reviews. Uh, so you don't just have to hear what we think about the books. Um, and are you ready to do a reader review? Yeah, let's get to it. So our first reader review comes from Monet um, from Vacaville, California. So since you're better at reading out loud, do you want to read this one? Sure. Okay, so here are Monet's words. I was on the fence about Ignatius J. Riley, the protagonist of the story. He starts out as a lazy, unemployed, self-victimizing slob, but he quickly starts growing on you. I actually started to sympathize with his internal sense of grandeur and ended up rooting for him by the end of the book. While Ignatius's antics are fun to follow, the other characters in their New Orleans dialogue slash dialect really makes the book come to life. I especially enjoyed Miss Trixie, an elderly woman that's been working far past her retirement and spends most of her time sleeping at her desk and in a constant state of confusion. I also liked the efforts of Darlene, a dancer at the bar that will try anything in her act to help attract customers, including stripping with a bird. John Kennedy Toole's ability to weave these very different characters in a single into a single plot is hilarious and a fun journey to take as a reader. At times, I didn't know how this story would come together, but it did in an incredibly satisfying way. It also made me crave a hot dog. Oh my god, that's precious. I mean, yeah, if a book makes you crave a hot dog, that's a winner. I feel like the people who listen to this podcast are such better people than we are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like this was well more thought out than ours, but I also feel like I want a hot dog now. So, Ugh. I mean... Thanks, Monet. Thanks, Monet. If you have a review for one of our books in the future, shoot us an email at letsgetlitpodcast at gmail.com and we will probably, well, probably star. We'll read it out <laughs> loud. Yeah, I mean, especially because you guys seem to be a lot smarter than us so yeah. far. Keep up the good work. Also, if your review is adorable like that, please send it to me. It's like the version of like a cute puppy. <laughs> 10 out of 10 would read again. Um. So what are we reading next week? So next week, we are going to be kind of on a Halloween kick. We're going to do Witches of Eastwick. Oh, fun. It's like Hocus Pocus. I mean, I hope so. I love Halloween. Halloween is the best. Fall seasons are great. We are very basic bitches and proud about it. I'm going to go get very my boots Very basic witches, on. I should say. Oh, cute. Okay, good. I'm excited. I'm going to do a little bit of reading about Witches of Eastwick. I think there's a movie about that, too. Yeah, I I never watched it, but I know Cher was in it. Ooh, I love anything with Cher. So I'm sure it's all going to be great. All right, well, if you guys want to read along with us, pick up a copy of Witches of Eastwick. We're also going to be doing a giveaway on the gram, so follow us at Let's Get Lit Podcast. And let's get lit. Let's do it.